Hello, I'm Scott Treadway, lead pastor here at Rancho. Thank you for joining us for Upside Down Christmas. Normally at Christmas time, we put the light on top of the tree. Well, Jesus, the light of the world, went to the bottom. He was the least, he was the last among us. And so the light of heaven came to the bottom. And what that means for us is that he came to serve and we can do the same thing. If you'd like more information about Rancho, you can see us at rancho.tv. If you'd like to give to support the ministry, rancho.tv slash giving, enjoy. So here's the deal. We've been going through this series called Upside Down Christmas. It has been a fun series uh, where we've been looking at the birth of Christ and just how upside down it was. But I want to just take a moment for those of you guys that have not been here. I'm going to try as best I can to sum up the entire series in one power-packed sentence. So here's what I believe this series is all about. Here we go. Upside Down Christmas is a series in which we celebrate and appreciate how condescending Jesus was. What do you think? Kind of awkward, right? You're like, I don't know, that sounds, sounds right. You know, for those of you guys that don't know why it's awkward, if you don't know what the word condescending means, it means to talk down to someone in a way that makes them feel inferior to you. That's 0 for 4, by the way. I've tried that joke four times. It's, I'm trying to condescend to people. Okay, whatever. But the key was I kept swinging, and that's what matters. So obviously the idea of condescension is something that I personally despise. I have a list of people. Scott can vouch for this. There's a list of people that I just don't like. Uh, people types. Uh, number one on that list is condescending people. People that make you feel, they don't make you, they make me feel angry. They don't make me feel, feel dumb. They make me feel like you are an arrogant jerk and I don't like you. But um, number two is grumpy, by the way. So, so just avoid me if you're one of those two things. Um, but the word condescension or to condescend doesn't always have to have that negative connotation. That's how we use it, but it used to have a, a much richer and actually in many ways a beautiful definition. So the word condescend, um, as it's meant in that sentence I said, is to waive the privileges of rank and to willingly lower oneself to another level. That's, that's what I mean when I say that this series is all about appreciating and celebrating how condescending Jesus was. For him to, to go from his position and power and authority of heaven to, to lower himself to the absolute bottom. So this is my adjusted version of that sentence for clarity's sake. Upside Down Christmas is a series in which we celebrate and appreciate the fact that Jesus waived the privilege of his position as the Son of God and willingly lowered himself to humbly serve the last, the least, and the lost here on earth. And so that is what we've been talking about in this series. And like I said, we've looked at the birth, and we've also acknowledged the fact that all throughout his life, we see this willingness to condescend, to go from, from the highest of highs, uh, you know, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and to humbly place himself at the bottom. So um, when Jesus came into this world, we know that it was a humble, selfless, sacrificial life he lived. He came into a world where, um, where discrimination and favoritism were the way of the world. I mean, especially first century Judaism, it was very much everyone had a place and everyone knew their place. And for all intents and purposes, Jesus belonged at the top of that. But he didn't, he didn't take that position. Instead, he, he lowered himself to the bottom and he used his power and his authority for the benefit of others. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, says it wonderfully. It says, Though he was God, Jesus did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on the cross. That's what I mean when I say that Jesus, honestly, I believe Jesus is the most condescending man to ever watch, walk the face of the earth in the most beautiful, non-obnoxious way. 
to go from, from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. I want to share with you one more passage that I think sums this series up beautifully when it comes to just how high he came from and to just how low he went. Um, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah the prophet shares a vision with the people that he had of Jesus. It tells us later in the Gospels that it was, it's referring specifically to Jesus. So it says in chapter 6, verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, I saw Jesus, high and exalted, seated, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, or angels, each of them with six wings, and with two wings they covered their faces, and with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And as they were flying, they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah says that at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. I am hoping that as I'm reading that, you're trying somehow to get some idea of just how insane this picture was. When you, when you read the story and you go on and you see that Isaiah's response to this whole thing was, was seriously nothing other than just like, I have no business being here. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He's just like, I got nothing. He is blown away by what he's seeing. The, the part I want to stress here is that the angels, when they are speaking, the thresholds and the doorposts shake. Every time in scripture when an, when an angel appears to somebody, somebody's like, whoa. They are blown away by how incredibly glorious these angels are. Now these creatures that make, make man quiver, in this vision, they are flying in front of Jesus. And it says with two of their wings they're flying, with two of their wings they're covering their face as if to say, we are, we are, we are too lowly to behold his glory. And, and I bring that up because that's Isaiah chapter 6, them, them covering their faces because of the glory of God. In Isaiah chapter 53, there's a prophecy about Jesus and what he's going to go through, the, the, the disrespect and, and the, the, the terrible stuff he had to endure. And it says, he was despised and rejected like one from whom men hide their face. Not because of his glory, but because of his shame. Someone whose life is so tragic, they can't even look at it. From that height to that low. With their other wings, it says that they covered their feet because it was like a thing back then. The feet were just incredibly, just, they, they, were, they, were, they were very undignified. And they were covering their feet as if to say, I, I don't even dare to present my feet in your presence. This is, this is how high they saw Jesus. And now in John chapter 13, at the Last Supper, we know that each one of his disciples walked, down and walked by the, the bowl of water and sat down at the table. And it was Jesus that tied the apron around himself got down on his hands and knees and began to wash the feet of his disciples, the dirty, filthy, disgusting feet of his sandal-wearing disciples. It says that as they circled him, they cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The people that were in front of Pontius Pilate when he said, what do you want me to do with him? They yelled something very different. They yelled, crucify, crucify, crucify. It says in this story that he was sat on a throne and his robe filled the temple. He went from a throne to a cross. He went from a crown of glory to a crown of thorns. When we think of condescension, when we think of Jesus flipping the script upside down, this is, this is what I'm talking about. It's shocking. It's something that should hopefully, like when we think of Christmas and we think of, I hope that at the very least, when you think of the story of Christmas, you see it for the ridiculousness of it so that you are inspired to appreciate the love that it shows. It is, it is absolutely insane. Now here's the thing. Jesus says in John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. 
But in Matthew chapter 5, he says something very similar but very different. He says, you are the light of the world. And that's what I want to talk about today. We've spent so much time appreciating the, the light that he's shown from the bottom up, but now we have to understand that he's calling us to shine our light. And he's calling us to do it. He's calling us to be the light of the world. And churches all, all throughout history, in different denominations, in different places, churches have tried to wrestle with what it means for us as a church to live out the calling to be the light of the world. And the one thing I'll say is that while different churches have different ways of going about it, some of them I agree with more than others, the one thing I think is non-negotiable is that as we shine our light to this world, it must be from the bottom up, just as Jesus did. Aside from that passage where he calls us to be the light that he is, there's other passages that are very specific about how we ought to shine our light. John chapter 13, after he washes his disciples' feet, he says to them, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. He just got done doing the most despicable, humble act he could do. And he looks at him and he goes, this is how I want you to love other people, from the bottom up. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, it says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. I take that passage and I look at that last phrase, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And if you just, if you just started firing words, in fact, does anyone have a word they want to fire out? How did Christ love us? Unconditionally. Fantastic. How else? Holy. Holy. How about selflessly? Sacrif did we say sacrificially? How about generously? How about graciously? Selflessly, unconditionally, patiently, compassionately. This is a very specific call. We are called to love one another that way. So when it comes to us shining our light, it is an upside-down life that he is calling us to. He is calling us to an upside-down life. Now, here's two statements that I believe to be true with all my heart. Fact number one, the overwhelming majority of Christians know that we are called to follow Jesus' example of upside-down living. We get that. I'm willing to guess that not many of you people are like, oh, my goodness, all this time I had no idea. I'm guessing that most of you get that. Most of you understand that we are called to, to sacrificially flip the script and, and serve people and be, try to selflessly and humbly serve the people around us. But fact number two is, is equally kind of not shocking. Fact number two, the overwhelming majority of Christians struggle tremendously to live out this calling with any level of sincerity or consistency. Or maybe it's just me. So here's the thing. Um, I've wrestled with this, this whole idea throughout the week with Scott and Steve and much different people. And, and the one thing that just keeps coming up when we talk about this is, that, I mean, right off the top of the head, like the first three, like the question, why do we struggle so much with this? Like, why is it such a struggle for us to embrace upside down living? The first, I mean, like, it's, it's countercultural. I mean, the reason it's called upside down is because there's a, there's a norm that, that is the opposite of what we're being called to. How about the fact that it's counterintuitive? I mean, literally, the, you're going to people and saying, listen, you want to find fullness and happiness? Just go serve and sacrifice and, and meet the, the needs of others first and foremost. They're like, what? That's insane. It's like when Lightning McQueen is told by Doc that when you want to turn left, you have to turn right on the dirt. And he's like, that's crazy talk. That's what this should seem like if we're being honest. And then last but not least, it just goes completely and totally against human nature. We are not wired to walk into a room and say, who can I just lift up right now? And, and I'm, I've said this countless times before with kids, adults. I believe with all my heart that we are wired to get our value and self-worth from somewhere outside of ourself. And I believe that is, that is, we're supposed to find it in God. 
And when we look to God, and we will hear him saying, I love you dearly. But the problem is we are separated by our sin, and we, and we, we as a result, go into rooms and we, and we say to you, am I lovable? Am I valuable? Do I measure up? Which means that when I walk into a room, the last thing on my mind is, is, is how I can lift you up because I'm too busy asking myself the same question. So all of these things, counterintuitive, counterinstinctive, contrary to our human nature, it makes me wonder, is this a doomed, are we doomed? Is, is there any chance that we can actually live into this? And the question I came up with is, yes, we're doomed, and no, we're not. Yes, we're doomed when it comes to the idea that we will never do it as beautifully and holy as Jesus did. Sorry. Like, Jesus is Jesus, so it's, it's cheating. But we... We are never going to do that. We still, I mean, Paul, this incredibly amazing selfless man, says in Romans chapter 6, I believe it is, he says, the things that I know I ought not to do, it's amazing how often I find myself doing them. And there's these things I know that I should do. I know there's fullness found in these things, and for some reason I, I struggle to do them. That's, that's a very real issue. None of us will ever perfectly do this, but I don't think we're doomed. And what I, what I mean by that is that I do believe that there is hope. I believe that there is hope for very real, very significant growth. And the question is, how does that come about? How do we actually see that real growth? Um, Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says it about as beautifully as it could. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world. In other words, flip it upside down. The world does things a certain way. I'm, I'm telling you, don't do that. Well, how, how can we do that? It says right here. It says, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It comes down to us thinking about things differently. Steve Solomon does a lot of counseling, and he said to me the other day, he goes, one of the things I will say to people on a regular basis in counseling, we'll get, we'll get to this point where, where we're just, we're really getting into the nitty gritty, and he'll say to him, listen, I, I need you to know something. If you can somehow get to the point where you can find a way to see this from a different perspective, if you can begin to see it just a little bit differently, there's a very, very, very real chance that this can make a huge difference in your marriage, in your life. He's saying, listen, it all comes down to just a, a, under, a new way of thinking, a new way of seeing things. That's where transformation comes. The bottom line for me is this. In order for us to be able to live out the calling to be the light of the world with any semblance of sincerity or consistency, we must change the way we think. So I want to talk about two different ways that we need to shift how we think. And uh, the first one is this. We must begin to believe in a very real and tangible way that we are truly and deeply loved by God just as we are. I'm going to read that again because it's very important. In fact, nothing else I'm going to say today matters. The second key way of changing the way we think is totally pointless if we don't get this. The only chance we have of ever being able to see significant growth in the way that we live as far as you know, living into this call of an upside down life is if we begin to believe in a very real and tangible way that we are truly and deeply loved by God just as we are. Why is that so important? I believe it's important because insecurity crushes, it absolutely crushes our ability to live selflessly. Insecurity and shame and, and, and all these, 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 am I good enough? Again, when I, when I walk into a room, if, if I'm still wondering if I'm loved, if, if, I, if I'm good enough, I, there's no way I'm going to be able to walk in there and be selfless. But if I can begin to wrap my mind around the fact that God loves me in spite of all my brokenness, he loves me just as I am, then there is a chance that out of that fullness, I can go and behave in a way that is totally abnormal. There are, um, there are some kids that are really good friends with my, my sons. 
and their family is a little bit better off than our family. And so, not that our family's not great. Our family's fantastic. We're doing fantastic. Okay, anyway, this guy makes more money than I do. And so we go to these pizza things after football games and, and those arcades of death where it's like 20, like 50 cents a game now. And if you're lucky, you get 10 tickets. And if you get 100 tickets, then you can get a Chinese finger trap or a paddle ball. And the first time we went there, I'm like, I just went through $20 to entertain my kids for 20 minutes. This is insane. And everything, everything was broken before we left. So my thing is, I'm, I'm done with this. We are no longer shoveling out this money. I'm like, here's two bucks. There's a 99 cent store across the street. You can get more value there. We'll go there afterwards if you want, or you can waste it on what you want to waste it on. My kids waste it. But one day, I remember being very confused because my kids were playing for 30, 40, 50 minutes. And I'm like, how is this happening? Have they found a way to cheat a, cheat a game? What's going on? You know, and, and then finally, I realized that the entire time, their friends have been giving them money. And I'm thinking, what kind of insanity is this? What, these kids are sharing their money with you? How did these kids do? Like, wh what kind of like, weird kids are these, right? Like naturally sharing and being generous. And, and, and I remember just trying to chew on this for a while. Like, why have I raised my kids so poorly? How are these kids so much better? And then it hit me. The only reason they were able to be this generous and this, this like giving to the people around them was that they were completely and totally secure that at any point they needed to, they could walk back and be like, And, and, and so again, they knew they were good here and they were able to, to bend that out here. It, that is, it is only through the security of knowing that we are loved by God that we ever have a chance to really embrace and live out this upside down living. Now here's the tragedy that I have seen and you guys have heard. I guarantee you, if you spend enough time in church, you have heard that the, the church's approach, the, church, the, the church's attempts to motivate people to live the upside down life are tragically the exact opposite of what we need. Most experiences I had as a young man in children's ministry and youth group, when it came to people trying to convince me to, to live this upside down life, it was guilt, fear, and shame. All of which do the exact opposite of what this point is, which is helping us know and believe deep down that we are loved by God just as we are. They would say things like, Ryan, these are just phrases I've heard. God doesn't like it when you tell lies. But you're like, what's wrong with that? What kind of picture of God is that? It makes it, basically, God is two emojis, frowny face and happy face. And, and if we're not careful and we communicate that way, to, okay, guess what? Today you made God angry, God. It's on you, bro. God doesn't like it. You know he doesn't like it. And think about, I mean, does God like it when we lie? No. But there's a whole lot more depth to that. The same with it. I mean, ideally, as a loving father, I would hate the idea of my children lying, not because it just randomly makes me angry, but because I know how destructive lying is to their life and I want what's best for them. But when we settle for this simple phrase, God doesn't like it when you lie, we're, we're, we're missing the point. Here's another one. Uh, hey, Ryan, Jesus had to die on the cross for your sins, so uh, the least you could do is make a legitimate effort to stop blank. Guilt, shame, and fear. How about this one? The Bible says that you will know them by their fruit and that every tree that doesn't bear fruit will be cut down and thrown, thrown into the fire. Ryan, are you bearing any fruit? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't even know if I'm, gonna like, if I'm saved anymore. I mean, think about my point being that the only chance we have of being able to bend out God's love is when we're really secure in it. And, and the church has been saying, you're not. Now go. It's horrible. One last one. Hey, Ryan, he knows when you've been sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Tell me the church has not turned 
our relationship with God into the nice and naughty list. Since when has the naughty list ever brought about any real transformation in anyone's life? But that's what we've settled for. Again, the first shift that has to take place, we must truly, deeply believe in our hearts that we are loved by God just as we are. All right, the second shift that has to happen. We must begin to believe in a very real way that fullness, satisfaction, lasting joy, and meaning are found in a life of selfless service to others. We must begin to believe in a very real way that fullness, satisfaction, lasting joy, and meaning are found in a life of selfless service to others. This is what I call my youth ministry verse because I would work with kids and I would, I would so desperately want to see them stop making the mistakes that they were making. They were, they were running the right side up rat race as hard as they could. They were playing all the games that people tell you to play. You know, you know, if you can just get your physical appearance right, if you can just say this, do that, dress this way, then it's the right side up rat race and it's infuriatingly pointless. And I would watch kids bang their head against that wall over and over and over again. And I would want them to say, I would want, if I could just insert wisdom into them where they could see there is true fullness, abundance found when you flip the script. When you take this rat race of just me, 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 and you flip it upside down out of a, a sense of gratitude and an overflow of, man, I am loved as I am. I can go and pour it out to others. If that happens, it's a game changer. Um, a French mathematician philosopher named Blaise Pascal says one of my favorite quotes. He says, all men seek happiness. Ladies, this, this is like a, a, a broad man. All people seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend towards this end. The cause of one man going to war and the other man avoiding it, it is the same desire at work in both of them, simply attended with different views. The will of man never takes the least step but to this object. It's deep. It's a noodle baker. It bakes your noodle. If you, if you, like that is a thing you can think about for a long time. I cannot tell you how long I've spent chewing on that idea. Why do I do the things I do? Why do my kids do the things they do? Why, why? This, this is deep. And it speaks to something that is very, very uh, real within us. It speaks to a, a principle at play in the way that we function. And so my question is, is that, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? The fact that we are motivated by a pursuit of happiness. Anyone? The answer, is, the answer is both. It all depends on how stupid you are. And I mean that as respectfully as I can. If you are a wise man, that is fantastic news. If you are a fool, stay away from me. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus paints a picture of two men, a wise man and a foolish man. The wise man builds his house on the rock. The foolish man builds his house on the sand. Both of them built their houses based upon what they thought would bring them happiness. One of them was just dumb. And when the rains came, it fell. So, my last question is this. Is it wrong for us as Christians to be motivated by the pursuit of happiness? It seems like it taints the purity of things, right? Like, can I, I mean, aren't we supposed to just do things for the goodness in them themselves aside from any benefit to us? And I, I understand that thought. And there's certainly times where we, we will do things to get something and it, it is absolutely wrong. It's very much a, 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 an un, unnatural thing is what I would say. 
C.S. Lewis, who I'll quote in a second about someone else, he says that for us as human beings to be, to be uh, compelled or fueled by a reward is not wrong so long as the, the reward is a natural uh, byproduct of the actual act itself. And, and so, so the idea is if, if I were to, to choose to, um, you know, uh, love my wife well because her parents are incredibly rich and one day I'll get the inheritance, that's horrible and sick and wrong. But if I were to love my wife well, knowing that, man, like Ephesians 5 says, he who loves his wife loves himself. And man, the best thing I can do for me is to shower this woman with love. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that's a reward that honestly motivates me as a husband. I want to be as greedy and selfish as I can. And I use those words probably recklessly. But the idea is the most greedy, selfish thing I can do as a husband is to put her needs above my own. And, and, and in the end, it will be best for me. And that is a natural reward. Um, here's what, um, here's what he, Hebrews chapter 12 says about the idea of, of is it wrong to be, to be motivated by a pursuit of happiness? Let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now, here's what Jesus did. Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the joy that was set on the other side of that task is what fueled him through it. This idea of the reconciliation that was going to be a result of it. So again, there's nothing wrong with the pursuit of happiness being our fuel. In fact, here's what C.S. Lewis says about it in his book, Weight of Glory. He says, if we consider... The unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards that are promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. In other words, his issue is not that we're being too greedy. The issue is that he's like, why are you settling for the absolute rat race of the right side up game that people are calling you to? It's foolish. You're settling. He goes on and says that we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who, who insists upon going on making little mud pies in a slum because he can't even fathom what's meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. Our problem is that we are far too easily pleased. We settle for what the world says is where abundance is found. And I'm telling you, the second thing that we have got to shift in our thinking, the first one, we have got to shift and understand that we are deeply and truly loved by God just as we are. And the second one is that fullness, incredible fullness and abundance is found in a life where we put others' needs above our own. There's a shift that happens here. It, all, all, all this time I've been, I've been referring to God calling us to this life. It, it, there's almost a burden associated with it. There's like a sense of honor and duty. Like God calls us to it, we should do it. For me, the biggest shift was when I began to realize God calls me to it, yes, but I see it more as an incredible invitation. In our children's ministry, when we talk about God's word, we, we, are, we are constantly telling the kids, this book is full of wisdom, but it's full of all sorts of wise warnings. Wise warnings about things that can just wreck your life, but it's also full of incredible invitations where you will find fullness that you never imagined. And that's what this upside down life is, this incredible invitation. So I have a, a I almost said challenge. I'm, I, I had an invitation for you. And that is that, that you taste and see just how good this life is. Psalm chapter 34, verse 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It, it, Jesus is like, hey, look, we're Costco. You can try it before you buy it. Try it before you buy it. Taste and see. I am challenging you. We have two days until Christmas. The home stretch. This is where things get. This is the needy greedy. Okay? Two days until Christmas. How many of you guys already know you're going to take a trip to Costco in the next two days? See where I'm going with this? 
My challenge for you, in fact, I'm going to put that challenge up there on the board. My challenge to you is that you taste and see that the upside down, excuse me, that upside down living fueled by gratitude and security in our standing with Christ is where fullness is found this Christmas. So before you get into that parking lot, I want you to pause, which should not be hard because you'll pause the entire way there. <laughs> just, just one little pause after another. And before you get out, okay, all right, how, what's this going to look like? How am I going to do this? Ryan challenged me. How am I going to do this parking lot upside down? And my answer to you is you probably should not go into that parking lot. You should probably just go park over by Mervyn's or whatever and just walk it out. Just walk it out. And if you get hit on the way over there, don't blame me. You just need to keep your eyes up while you're walking it out. But think about that. What if you just said, listen, hey, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to park super far away so you guys can park lower upside down. Then you get into Costco. Shopping carts of death, right? What if you just, what if you sat there for a minute and you'd be after you, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead, if I wait long enough, the sample lady will forget I came by. <laughs> right? Just let her go. And, and how many of you guys are the errand runners in the house? Anybody errand runners? That's my, that's my gift. My wife does so many things that are just incredible to keep our house what it is, but what I do really well is you give me a list and I will run around this town and get it. So if you're me in, in, in your household and you get that list and you look at whoever it is that gave you that list and you say, is this the list? And they go, yes. And you go, no, no, no. Is this the whole list? <laughs> and, and she says, yes. And, you, and there you are. You've done your Costco and, you, and you're in the line. You've worked your way up through the 10-minute line and your phone goes... Just, just, hey, babe, I just got here. Do you need something else? That'd be crazy, right? My challenge to you for this Christmas in all seriousness is fill in this blank. How can I make blanks Christmas amazing? My challenge for you, maybe, maybe for your family, is, is, is there a family that you can bless this Christmas with something, just an act of generosity, an act of selflessness? Um, there is a way that you can approach this Christmas differently this year, and my encouragement to you is that you find a way to flip the script. Maybe Uncle Billy's coming, and you know for a fact he's going to talk politics. Again, maybe you just make up your mind and say, I'm going to forbear. I'm going to forbear means I'm, I'm going to brace myself ahead of time, and I'm going to be gracious, and Billy's not going to know what to do with himself. I don't know what it is for you, but my encouragement is, how can I make blanks Christmas incredible? How can I serve others this Christmas? Let me pray real quick, and, and then I'll dismiss you guys. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the, this season and the reminder that is wrapped up in it, the truth that is wrapped up in this incredible condescension. The fact that your, your son would go from such high highs to such low lows because he loves us. Father, I pray above anything else, as we celebrate Christmas and as we remember what it's all about, that we would be reminded of what an incredibly ridiculous love you have for us. And Father, I pray that that love would be the fuel that drives us to start tasting and seeing just how full a life where the script is flipped can be, where, we, where, we, where we're upside down, we're putting others above ourselves. Father, I pray that each one of these families would have a great, great Christmas. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. We pray that you would allow that to be the fuel that drives us each and every day, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.